0: That was probably one of the saddest times of my dad's career. He was uh, in a bed asleep, and in the middle of the night, he got a call from the dispatcher, the police officer, and he was very upset.
1: They called me at the house and told me get, to get out to the hall quicker than you can. One of my men had been shot.
0: He said they were arresting somebody and he shot two of your policemen.
1: One of them was shot down. Both of them been shot.
0: Dad immediately, of course, went to the city hall. When he got there, one policeman, uh, was dead. His R- name was Rowry. Tommy Rowery, Uh was dead. He was a black police officer that worked for Dad. The other one was, was a white officer who had been shot through the stomach.
1: The one was still alive and He they taken him to the hospital.
0: Tommy, he ran out a little ways down to the city and died. We walked in at 2 o'clock in the morning. Somebody's going to get arrested. His daddy bought him a couple of peacocks. Shot him about eight times. And all of a sudden, he got real quiet.
2: The governor sent his chief of staff, Tom Lewis. I don't
0: care. I want him to sit down. And they stole my car.
2: Shook dad like nothing i have ever seen.
3: This is Policing Green, a policeman at the sunset of the Jim Crow South. In this episode, Carlton Lewis takes Deputy Johnny Grimes to shut down the juke joint. We learn more about the love of Carlton's life, Eleanor, and a civil rights leader goes to Greene County Jail. Now, the conclusion of our story. Officer Tommy Rowry is killed and Officer Michael Cook gravely wounded, both shot at the hands of a man named Robert Lewis
1: Wallace. He grabbed his wife, so he grabbed and take his gun. When he did, he shot him. Shot him in the stomach with a .357 man. and he failed And they shot him again. Shot at him again on the pro, but he missed. Why he shot him? This other, Blackfoot had run out the restroom, run back in there where they was at, and he shot him in the neck. And that's where he he lasted until he got down to the finish line. Did he run out the front door? Just- yeah, run out the front. They shot at shot at him again. And when the dead, uh, and they stole my car, he, he, he jumped in my police car and took off.
0: Later, the guy that murdered the one policeman and shot the other one was later found by some officers in Atlanta.
1: He'd been hiding out of that. And we had helicopters and planes in their way I'm looking for my police car. We couldn't find it, no man. I know I sit up all that the night. The next night too, until we caught him. We caught him the next night. Uh,
0: he was hiding under a house, but he was arrested. Yeah, he, he still had my shotgun. Uh. At the funeral, at least 50, 75
1: police cars uh,
0: Dad spoke. They held it in the Union Point gym, and he got up and talked about how important the work that Tommy had done, and what a great policeman he was. And I don't know, I really to this day don't know how he got through that, because it was such an emotional time. He had two small kids and a, and a wife, and uh, it was uh, just a very sad time for Union Point. The other police officer got over it. He was in the hospital in Greens- in uh, Athens for weeks. It uh, shook dad like nothing I'd ever seen. It was tough on my mother, because again, as it would happen, On a regular basis, it would come home to her what he was dealing with and the fact that he would have been there. You know, half his force was wiped out in a matter of minutes in a little small town.
2: Later that night, Carlton and Eleanor were having supper alone at home. They both had been quiet after returning from the funeral, and both had so far been moving food around their plates without eating much of it. Those were lovely words you said for Tommy, Carlton. They really were. I didn't know what I was going to say till I got up there. You didn't need to. You let your heart speak for you. Everybody knew that. I just can't get over how that situation went from routine to Tommy being dead in a heartbeat and the thought of him staggering down the street with all that blood. Carlton paused and coughed softly. That won't ever go away, or my worry for his wife and that baby boy of theirs. What are they going to do without him? Eleanor did not respond. She just sat... Staring at her husband, "What are you thinking, hon?" He finally asked her. She swallowed and her eyes misted. "I'm thinking it could have been you, Carlton." She choked back a sob. "Some day, it may be you."
3: Team Blue Line is a nationwide nonprofit that helps the families of law enforcement officers who have selflessly given their lives and officers who have been injured mentally or physically in the line of duty.
4: One of the wonderful resources I came across is in the Library of Congress online catalog of photographs. During the Roosevelt administration, his farm security agency contracted with photographers to go into small communities and farming communities, rural areas, all across America a photographer who became quite famous by the name of Jack Delano went into Georgia and spent weeks in Greene County where he photographed activities in Union Point, in Greensboro, and particularly out in rural areas and small communities of both the black and the white citizens. And he gave a fascinating cross-section of what the people and the place looked like in those days. The photographs are crisp, they're just beautiful. They're black and white, of course, but they really brought to life for me Green County of generations ago, that was really not unlike what Carlton Lewis grew up in at all, and had not even changed that much when he became a police officer in the mid 1960s.
3: We take you now
1: to the juke joint.
3: Deputy Lewis is up late a few hours before the sun rises on a Sunday.
1: I go out there on the weekend and, uh, and always been a, always a fight or two going on out there.
0: Back in the 60s and 70s, there were what people refer to as juke joints. And they were joints where they played music, and mainly it was in the uh, African American community.
4: These juke joints were basically places for black people who had worked hard all week long, maybe out in the hot sun, that doing some hard labor uh, for very little pay.
0: Well, dad uh, was at that time, had a, a deputy that was riding with him, that was training, named Johnny Grimes.
5: People worked really hard. They worked all week, and on the weekends, they drank, and Throughout the the, the countryside, there was different little juke joints, i.e. little pop-up clubs, things like that, that people did so they could sell illegal alcohol. Half of them, you didn't even know where they were. Sometimes they popped up in people's houses, poured off a room and this is going to be a club tonight. They had like jukeboxes there and they danced and into the wee hours of the morning. So there was illegal alcohol? Yes. Lots of it. <laughs> We're talking Greene County, Georgia. Yeah. One of the things that Deputy Lewis liked to do is maybe 1, 2 o'clock in the morning is just go in and purse these clubs and things, these jug joints.
0: Dad would look over to Johnny and he'd say, look, what time is it? And he said, well, it's after midnight. And he said, well, they're supposed to close down at midnight.
1: Because it was midnight Saturday night and they can't dance on Sunday. can and play that music on Sunday and that's
0: he would, like, he would like to say, well, me and old Johnny, we went into this Jew joint and we rested these guys and we took them in and, and uh, it was a little fighting had to take place, but you know, he was right there with me and he, we would been in a lot of tussles, but we, we, we stopped that, we shut that place down. You can imagine in the 60s when there was a little tension how this was going on this was all black establishment and here comes dad in there
5: number one it always pissed people off when the police walked through you know because you know it they, they just didn't feel like you should be there and in a way you really shouldn't you know but this was just one thing that he liked to do of course there were lots of drunks there and everything and that's where a lot of the fights occurred the way Johnny says they'd have to go in there and they would fight their way in
0: and then fight their way out He didn't mind fighting. He didn't mind doing what it took.
5: There were certain people that he knew, and they would call him out, and before you know it, they're rolling on the floor, you know? (laughs) And they'd arrest several people, and
0: they would be people that uh, were hard workers that had hard labor jobs, and basically, according to Johnny, they were just unwinding. But they would go in, and if they were disturbing the peace or being too unruly, dad would arrest him ironically when next week rolled around a lot of times dad would go to the judge and say you know your honor i i think we'd go lenient on him because he can't make any money if he's in jail and he's got kids at home and we need to give him a break if we can and the judge you know would say well you arrested him and dad would say well he was breaking the law but he also needs to feed his family
3: Carlton and Johnny are used to the occasional dust-up at the juke joint, but one time, Deputy Lewis is there with another officer when the guns come out.
1: I saw a man had a a gun, had it on his phone, and boy, he was was shooting away and, and shot him about eight times, and he fell back in the car. I shot about shot and then jumped out of the car and reached and got the gun or a rifle arm at rifle
3: Carlton snatches the gun and gives it to his fellow officer
1: taking it away from him give it to on there. and I got the man that he'd done the shooting. I put him in the back seat and the man that he shot didn't shot him by any time, but he was shooting him by here down. Like I throwed him in the back seat both of them together. and uh, so uh, they got the pussy back there in the back seat. But anyway, I had to get down by the jail, locked in, up, then I carried out to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, he finally, yeah, he leave.
3: If you like this podcast, buy a copy of the book Policing Green on Amazon. That's Green with an extra E on the end. Hal did extensive research to write the book, he goes much deeper in depth on all the stories you hear here.
0: You know, there's a lot of funny stories about Dad because Dad was a people person. When he went into a room, it lit up. That's, that's the kind of guy he was, and he was always cutting up. I remember one night at a dance. We used to have a dance down in Union Point at the community center, and I was with this uh, girl, and we were down there dancing, and all of a sudden, it got all real quiet around me, and I wonder what's going on. And I turned around, and my dad was standing in the door, chair step, standing in the door of the dance hall, looking at him. And so, I mean, you can imagine. I was totally humiliated. I couldn't believe that. Well, he does nothing but walk out on the dance floor and does the jitterbug, and everybody claps, and then he high-fives me and walks out of the community center. It was quite a, a scene, and, and he would do things like that from time. You just, you never knew what what he was going to do. Strangely enough, when we did the book, there were a lot of people that came to me and said, this is a hilarious story uh, that your dad was involved in. One of the funniest ones was the county historian. His name was Joel McRae. Joel grew up in Greene County, grew up in Union Point. And so when he heard that we was doing the book, he said, you gotta tell this story. And, and the story goes as Joel, when he was very young, he was like in middle school, his daddy bought him a couple of peacocks. Well, they had the peacocks at their house. And as peacocks would do, they make a squeaking, loud noise at time. Well, then some of the neighbors started complaining about the noise that the peacocks were making. And they called dad and they said, it's disturbing us. You know, something needs to be done. So dad drove by there and Joel came out and he said, son, let me talk to you. He said, I'm getting some calls on your peacocks. And uh, the calls are that the peacocks are making too much noise and disturbing some of the neighbors. Now, I've never arrested a peacock in my life and don't want to have to arrest one but it's causing us trouble and so what we're going to have to do is talk to your dad we're going to have to move those peacocks to the country and so that's what they did they his dad they, they took the peacocks and they moved them they moved them without you know citing anybody for anything let's just do this and that'd be the way to move on
3: Team Blue Line is a nationwide nonprofit that helps the families of law enforcement officers who have selflessly given their lives and officers who have been injured mentally or physically in the line of duty. Now, Deputy Lewis meets a civil rights leader, Hosea Williams.
0: The story, is is told in the book, is told by Kerry Williams, the publisher of the Green County Herald-Journal.
1: 65 is when they started integration
0: in the marching. During this time, there were a lot of marches going on in three of the counties that touched Green County. And, you know, Dad never talked about this. Jose, Jose
1: Williams was in uh, Sandersville. Yes, sir. Marching, and he was drunk, and yeah. he was doing about 95 on I-20, I and Carlton pulled him over. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. See, this is one I
0: didn't know. And Dad arrested Jose because he was driving under the influence, and he brought him in.
1: White was the sheriff.
0: Uh, and uh, Dad and Sheriff White talked to him, and Dad pretty much said, look. You know, we don't want any problem. I'm, we're going to call somebody in your family, let them come get you.
1: And I told him, he said, I'm going to let you go if you call your daughter to come get you.
0: I'm not going to lock you up, but this is what you're going to do. You're never going to lead a march in Greene County. We're not going to have that.
1: But he says, don't you ever march in Greene County? And he says, I will never. And we were the only county.
0: That's yes, right. And and Jose agreed to it and never did.
2: On January 17, 1987, Williams led a march of about 75 blacks and whites outside of Cumming, setting the courthouse as their destination. They carried signs like, Give Brotherhood a Chance, to which the counter-demonstrators responded with, Sickle Cell Anemia, The Great White Hope. Rocks were thrown at Williams' protesters, one striking Williams himself in the head. Bruised and bleeding, the demonstrators fled for Scythe. The Ku Klux Klan declared it a great triumph. Maybe so, but it was short-lived. Seven days later, some 20,000 marchers and prominent activists, including Jesse Jackson and Coretta Scott King, converged on Forsyth along with state and national politicians. Governor Joe Frank Harris was determined that this march would have adequate protection and not be a repeat on a vast scale of Hosea Williams' first Forsyth March. The governor sent his chief of staff, Tom Lewis, Carleton's son, to supervise security for the march. The Georgia National Guard, the GBI, and the Georgia State Patrol were out in full force. Tom knew it was the state's duty and obligation to carry out the governor's orders that the protesters be protected. A long program of speakers was in the outing, and Tom feared that things would get out of control with the descent of January's early darkness. There with Tom in the command post at the Forsyth County Courthouse was Atlanta Mayor Andrew Young. Lewis discussed his concern with Young, and they set the goal of ending all speeches, including one by Hosea Williams, well before dark. The mayor would serve as master of ceremonies, with the primary job of getting the speakers to and then away from the microphone as quickly as possible. Otherwise, many would linger there, and darkness would settle in. Young performed masterfully to fulfill Tom Lewis' goal, and the huge demonstration ended peacefully. Carlton did not see the second Lewis-Williams interaction. He had died 10 months prior to the Forsyth Marches. It was ironic that years later, after the first encounter that Deputy Sheriff Lewis had with Reverend Williams, his son Tom Lewis as Chief of Staff to Governor Joe Frank Harris would be at the march to make sure the state protected 25,000 marchers led by Reverend Williams in Forsyth County. On that day, the governor had ordered over 2,000 Georgia National Guard, Georgia State Patrol and GBI to ensure that no violence occurred.
4: Carlton wouldn't recognize Greene County law enforcement today. First, there's no Union Point Police Department. Their coverage is given by the Sheriff's Office. And that office now has a budget of over $5 million and 10 times the number of officers it had in Carlton's day. Although Greene's has only increased by about 50%. Carlton said in one of his interviews that one man then did the work of 10 men today. When I first heard him say that, I thought it was an exaggeration,
0: but he was pretty much right on the mark. You know, growing up in my house, uh, mother was definitely, uh, dad was a patriarch or whatever because uh, she literally, I've never seen a couple as close as they were. She lived for him every day. I I never forget the first time I took my now wife, who is, we've been married 49 years. I took her home for the weekend and uh, from college. And we go in and we're sitting there. at the evening we got there and we are uh, eating dinner. And this used to happen. I never paid attention to it, but it was funny. She would get up after the tour, end, and we would sit there and talk. And so my wife, Patty, and I and my dad were there talking. And he was drinking his tea, and he kind of shook the glass to rattle the ice and set it down on the table. Well, she was in the other part of the house, and she would walk. She would hear that. She would walk into the kitchen, and she would reach on the table and pick up, the pitcher of tea and pour his glass of tea and put it down and then she'd walk walk out my then girlfriend said don't ever do that to me you know don't ever try that and the funny thing was he never asked for tea he never asked for that he was not demanding to her but that was just who she was and you know there was ever ever a spoiled individual in so, so many ways it was him because she was so devoted which trans into her worry about him in this job she didn't worry about him in the other jobs you know on saturdays when he had the service station she would fix him a full meal and pack it on a big tray hot and drive down to the service station and put it at his thing so he'd have a, a big meal to eat that day why he was running that service day. That's just who she was. And so she did worry about him. She had a brother and a sister. They grew up in a little community in Norwood, Georgia. And her sisters taught school for 49 years. My mother taught school for 39 years. And uh, they were dedicated teachers, supported the public school system. And her life was really taking care of my dad and those kids in the classroom. And, you know, that was who who she was. She was a very defensive of her family. She didn't want anybody messing with them. And she had that what you might say red hair attitude sometimes. She didn't she was pretty strong. But anyway, that's kinda who she was. She worried about him a lot. I never forget. One day our school superintendent was Dr. de Ford Boston, one of the good leaders of uh Green County, and a and a forward thinking guy. He called all the black teachers from the black school, which was F.T. Carey High School, and all the white teachers, and they met in a gymnasium. The black teachers sat on one side, the white teachers on the other. He called them together, and he simply said, integration is coming. The courts have ruled. We're a couple of years away. Integration is coming. We don't need somebody coming into this county and telling us how to run our county. We don't need that. We can do that on our own. So he says, before integration is forced on us, I want to show the people in Georgia and the southeast that we know how to handle this, and we are above that. So he said, I want a white teacher to go to the black school, and I want a black teacher to go to the white school. I'm very proud to say that my mother was the first teacher, raised her hand, and she volunteered to go to the black school. I never will forget at the funeral it was a shock because Dad was only 69 years old. I got the call. At the time, I was the Governor's Chief of Staff, so they sent a patrolman to come get me and to take me to Union Point. And so I was going down there because it was, it was an emotional time for all of us, and you couldn't even hardly get to the house for the people that were there. And it was packed, and Mother was, was very emotional and very upset. She was so worried about him losing his life in service as a policeman, she never thought he'd have a massive heart attack after he retired, she just knew that it would be better. And then 10 days after he retired, he had a massive heart attack and died. It, it was uh, the service, as you can imagine, was a lot of police officers, a lot of patrolmen, a lot of patrol cars, a lot of police officers, and they had an honor guard. The uh, then new chief of police in Union Point ordered the honor guard out of Macon, I think. It came and they stood there, and when we got to the church, the family got to church, I was getting Mother out of the car, and we were walking in the church. It, It was packed, big crowd, and she looked up there at the casket, and there were two guys standing as honor guards over the casket, and they had guns. And Mother turned to me and she said, I don't want anybody with guns standing near that casket. And I said, Mother, this is an honor guard this is something that is an honor for us to have and she says I don't care I want them to sit down so I turned and I said you're gonna have to move honor God and just politely don't say anything in the congregation as we were getting ready to walk into the church we were standing at the door and they did and they sat down it was a very fitting and beautiful service, and and one that uh, he certainly deserved. But the last half didn't have an honor guard because she said they need to sit down. And I think she'd seen all the guns that she wanted to see. She didn't want to see no more guns. Then the service it was packed. You couldn't get another seat in the in the, in the church. It was pretty several several hundred people. The preacher said, you know, he was the finest Christian man I ever knew. And I said to me to me that said a lot too because he was involved in the church and everything, and he was fair. And his whole life, he reflected, did I do the right thing? Was I, did I make the right decisions? Was I fair to people? And I think that was a sign that, that he was. He, he really was. That was the kind of guy he was. But, uh, and I, soon after that, mother's health started declining uh, with dementia and everything. And I think the doctors in Atlanta, we took her to several specialists, and they said that the stress of everything contributed to it. I always thought that it was the reason that they both got together after, after death. And I, I thought that that was, uh, that was the reason it happened.
3: If you like Policing Green, please recommend us to your friends and family and give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It's been a pleasure working with Tom Lewis, Dr. Hal McAllister, and my co-producer, Mars Rinaldi. I'm Drew Nelson.
2: Team Blue Line is a national nonprofit organization that exists to help the families of fallen law enforcement officers and officers who have been injured both physically and mentally in the line of duty.
3: Visit teamblueline.org.
2: Hi, my
5: name's Ashley Reynolds. Um, my husband, Jamie, passed away July 31st of this year. Um, Team Blue has been amazing from the get-go. And I wanna say thank you to everyone that donates. Everything that you donate goes to a great cause and helps all of us. Thank you.